Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Dennis Bundar. He's an assistant professor at Tulane University in the School of Science and Engineering. And we're going to talk about uh, quantum technology and what are, what are called uh, ultra-fast nonlinear optics. So, Dennis, thanks for coming. Thank you very much for hosting on this wonderful podcast. Thank you. Well, tell me about your research. What does it do? What are you working on? So, I actually work on a different directions, uh, just you know, to keep myself uh, not bored. Uh, but my main thrust at the moment is trying to you know revive the dreams of our chemists. So can, can we rethink alchemistry from the point of view of quantum technology? So in as we know, alchemists, uh, of course, in a popular culture, they're they are scorned, you know, they're like laughed at a bit. But in reality, I think their legacy is quite important. Uh, you know, if you look, if you try to use a modern language, they were data scientists. They were collecting enormous amount of data on how substances interact. They were actually, first of all, they were scientists in the kind of, in the basic sense of this word. And they're fa- famous for trying to um, to achieve transmutation of lead into gold, among other metaphysical tasks, right? So as we know, in 20th century, you know, a new branch of physics started. It's called nuclear physics. And in fact, it turned out that this is possible. This is possible to turn lead into gold through a rather complicated chain of nuclear reactions. This is doable. Obviously, this is not something that we would like to use for... This is no commercial value. This is just too, way too expensive to be of any use. But some of the heavy elements are actually obtained in such a way of, of practical importance for which price, you know, for which this is economically makes sense. Oh, so you mean uh, there's some commercial efforts to make man-made elements that uh, what that exist in nature or the ones that literally don't exist in nature, like transuranic ones? Of course, there is a, no, there is, yeah, exactly. This is a 
very important field of research. And this is, in fact, how even, uh, I, I apologize not to remember exact date, but several years ago, maybe four years ago, two new elements were added, right, to the periodic table. It's precisely that, the, you know, these attempts are still being made and, you know, it's, it's a fundamental case. But moreover, as a, you know, expert in life sciences, you know that, you know, radioactive elements are also used for cancer treatment uh, and uh, some of them are synthesized in, uh, actually, in special like nuclear labs, right, uh, near power stations. So it's, this is useful for something, but not for making lead to go <laughs> this particular idea. So it already, you know, this fact already sort of makes alchemists, you know, mainstream, <laughs> you know. Now, when I was about, so several years ago, we asked, uh, we were working on a different project using quantum technologies. And then we realized that what we are actually working on is basically alchemy in the new light. What do I mean by this? So when we, uh, when we just, as we just presented, that we can actually turn actually lead into gold, it's possible to do via nuclear physics, nuclear chain of reactions. But what if you are asking a different question? What about making lead look like? So the key is look, not be gold. And this sounds maybe a little bit uh, very close, but in fact, those are very different questions because the question about making something look like something else is related to optic, the science of light. So suddenly, by formulating this question this way, you talk about optic, problem in optic. And we, okay, so we thought about, okay, so what does, what would it take for one uh, element to look like another? So to understand, I will just give the punchline. It is actually possible. It is possible. And let's, let's just understand what does it take to make, to to make this work. Uh, The idea is, why do we see things? We see things because light comes in, interacts with this substance and, you know, and uh, transmits or reflects back and comes to our eye. So we see this difference between, between light, that incident light and the outgoing, or in more scientific terms, there's a difference between optical input and optical output. So how is this optical input is related to optical output? So in other words, we try to ask this ourselves the question, and maybe it's, it's a bit, uh, you know, silly, but we try to think, okay, so optical optics is a really old, ancient, you know, science, not like nuclear physics, it's really ancient. Uh, it's as old as Newton's mechanics, right? If not, I mean, to be honest, it's older than that, but you know, more modern started from Newton. And we decided, okay, let's just treat this as a black box sort of engineering problem. Okay, so, so what is the properties of input connecting to output? What are the problems? So, I mean, it depends on light. It depends what kind of light you use. So, for example, if you use an everyday light, weak light, such that, you know, we use light bulbs, sun of light, and it's, it's a weak light. So it's all weak. And it's known that the relationship between optical output and uh, optical input is simply linear, right? So, you know, if you put twice as much light in the input, you get twice as, uh, as much on output. So linear relationship implies a unique, automatically implies unique uh, relationship between input and output for a given substance. And that's actually, what I said is a little bit maybe abstract, but what I said is that uh, it's a but, fundamental but what, thing. So what does that mean? If you, if you hit an object with photons of a certain frequency, you know what's going to happen? But in these substances, you don't? What do you mean? So uh, what, what is it? Any sub, giving any substance. As long as the light is weak, the relationship between input and output is unique. And this is how we know what stars are made of. This is, how we, this is what's called spectroscopy, right? This is used in life sciences, in astronomy, in industry, to detect, to discriminate, to identify substances, right? The compositions. It's precisely because when you shine a light of certain frequencies and you measure what comes out, you can work out what is what happened in between, and that tells you what the material is made of. 
that tells you it's a, this unique relationship between input and output for a given substance. And again, this is a really, really important tool, right? In, literally in every aspect of technology and, and science. And that's great. That's amazing, right? That, that's absolutely fantastic. It's one of those miracles, to be honest, uh, that we don't notice, right, anymore. It's like so boring that nobody talks about it, but this is pretty, pretty amazing. hundred years ago, right, people, a little bit more than hundred years ago, actually, people were just dreaming about this, right? They were saying, oh, we would never, for example, we would never know what stars are made of. Only 150 years ago, this was like common point of view. We would never know what stars are made of. But now we know everything. So now what happens if you use a bright light? And what do I mean by bright light? Uh, that's like laser, light of laser that requires a laser. So if your incident light is bright, means you have a laser, then the output and input no longer undergo, under uh, have a linear relationship. And this is very interesting. What are the reasons? Because you're breaking bonds in the substance, you know, the target, or what's the reason? Uh, the reason is that biologists, physicists, and, uh, and mathematicians uh, are asked to, to make predictions for a uh, horse race. And so biologists start, okay, so, you know, I need to, in order to predict outcome of horses, I need to know the diet, the exercise schedule, the well-being, the medical history of, the, of horses. Uh, so they ask, uh, you know, mathematicians, usually here in this sense, is, I mean, statistician, uh, what, what do you need to predict? I need to know, like, odds, you know, previous history of winning, success, what weather, weather part, pattern to predict. And then ask physicists, so what, what do you need to, you know, let us assume that the horse is a spherical ball moving in a vacuum so what happens is that you know molecules in, in, in this joke right we we visualize molecules as sort of like a harmonic oscillators right like a pendulum and if you don't if you don't excite pendulum right the if you don't excite pendulum too too hard you know i have a daughter two year daughter so i take her to swing so when i push a swing which is pendulum it doesn't matter how hard i push the frequency of oscillations or the period of oscillation swing is does not depend on my strength, basically the way I push it. Right? It's it's just determined by the by the her her mass and the length of the of the swing. So and that that's true as long as you don't start you know doing child abuse and pushing really hard, like so that swing will go like almost like you know ninety degrees. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to twenty seven hundred plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. And the reason is that, that actually the swing no longer behaves like a harmonic, like as a simple harmonic force, right? It's, it becomes a nonlinear system. So the same thing with molecules. If you start pushing them too hard, if you start moving electrons in this case, more specifically, we mean electrons. You start deforming electronic clouds in atoms or molecules, too significantly, it starts behaving like, you know, like a sticky jelly, like a, and it's no longer simple, like a rubber bat, right? So you deform slightly and it restores back to normal. Deform slightly, restores back to normal. Deform slightly more, it restores, still restores back to normal. But you start deforming them hard, you start feeling it's like a jelly. So it has some viscosity, you know, some dynamics. And it's precisely, you know, this, shall we say, non-elasticity of 
dynamics of the electrons in atoms and molecules. So you're trying to do modeling of what happens in these nonlinear ranges? Yes, it's not only us, it's a mainstream research. It's like a large area of research called nonlinear optics. Exactly, that's of interest. And I should mention that historically, this field was actually interesting enough. It was started by a woman. She was the second recipient of Nobel Prize in physics, historic, but for nuclear physics. And she, she actually, in her PG thesis, she predicted, actually, I forgot her name. She predicted the existence of the, you know, that this is possible. Actually, before her, nobody thought this is even possible. She saw theoretically it's possible. And, and of course, this field became officially the New York study as a research in the 60s once lasers were discovered. Okay. So this is a very, you know, scientifically is speaking. It, uh, is it Donna Theo Strickland? Oh, no, she's the third woman. <laughs> One second, okay. I'm going to find her. Yeah, Donna Strickland, actually, by the way, uh, she's also a Nobel Prize, her discovery. Uh, she was actually on my PhD committee. She, her discovery actually took nonlinear optics to absolutely new heights because she, she learned how to produce really bright laser, like really bright radiation. So, yeah, so actually, as you can see, two Nobel Prize winners, winner actually played an instrumental role in nonlinear optics. So, Maria Gopper Mayer. That's the name of the of the second okay. woman to receive Nobel Prize in physics, and Donald Strickland was the third one, recently in two thousand eight. So, so Maria Gopper Mayer received the Nobel Prize in nineteen sixty three for nuclear physics, and not not for not for this foundational work, theoretical work on nonlinear optics. You know, as a, any genius, right? Usually they made they make more uh, more than one discovery, really important discovery. So, what what's the point of driving these substances so hard? Like. Why is it important to be able to drive them harder? Is there a commercial use for this, or what's oh, the yeah, point? Oh it's, yeah, it's, it's very important. Um, so if you start uh, driving, uh, so spectroscopy, as we discussed before, based on this simple linear relationship between input out. Uh, unfortunately, as uh, substances become more complicated, uh, you know, we talk about molecules bigger and bigger, and especially this is a very big problem in life sciences. Uh, these fluorescence markers, for example, they have a really similar optical absorption and emission spectrum. So their signatures, linear signatures, spectroscopic signatures are very similar. And of course, if you have the substances which have similar, you know, which look similar, right? It's hard to, dis- to discriminate between them. And what happens is that once you use nonlinear effects, when you try to drive them nonlinear, actually, even though they look very, they could look very similar linearly, when you start to hit them hard, they actually look quite different. And so this is the purpose of precisely the area of nonlinear spectroscopy, spectroscopy based on driving molecules, you know, hard optically. And it gives you better sensitivity, better selectivity, better accuracy detection and discrimination. It's of commercial use in it's sort of use in, in industry as well as science and technology. Now, uh, these, um, uh, however, uh, because you, you need to drive them harder and harder, right? So this requires lasers. So usually this is more costly as far as equipment goes, significantly more costly than linear, you know, than regular spectroscopy. Okay. But nevertheless, it's important. It's an important area of research, right? Yeah, in application. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So going back to the question about to like you know alchemy. So once you have lasers, as I just uh, to reiterate, uh, once you have lasers, uh, like there is input and output are no longer linear. Therefore, they're not unique. You know, it's like a, if I if you allow myself to use mathematics here a little bit, like a, you know, if, if I give you a quadratic equation, right, and ask you to find uh, how many 
solutions are there for a quadratic equation, for a equation which has a second power. And there are two. In principle, there are two solutions. So it's no longer unique. But if you have a linear equation, you have only one solution, a single solution. So the same thing is in, in linear optics, right? There is a one solution between, there is one uh, unique relationship between um, input and output. And there are multiple relationships between input and outputs when you drive them non-linearly. By the way, that, that mathematical argument is actually, you know, it's quite close to reality, to rigorous argument. I hope it made sense. Well, what kind of um, applications would, would this be useful for? What, again, what benefit do you get from driving a substance, you know, harder than you would normally would linearly? Yeah. So let, let me first maybe a little bit. Model, but yeah, if I may, let me just complete this uh, explanation how we, how we make lead look like gold. Uh, like just one sentence, and then I will go to this answering this question. So when we so once you have no, no, non-uniqueness, this non-uniqueness, you can ask a question. Ah, if I have a non-uniqueness, then can I make lead look something else, right? Because if it lead is not looking like lead, that's you can make it look something else. If it Basically, if you non-unique, this means it, the same substance can look differently depending on how you shine light. And the answer turns out positive. It turns out to be uh, under very reasonable uh, physical assumptions. It is turns out to be universal, a universal possibility that yes, for any given substance and any desired optical output, we can find a laser pulse that will that will induce the optical response from a given substance such that it looks anything you want. So this is a possibility. And uh, when you say nonlinear optics, does that mean that the substances will be used to transmit information along fiber optic cables? Or is that just a generic name for what you're doing? Yeah, it's a generic name. But optics it means light, basically, right? science of light. Okay. Yeah, so of course, in a, for a general audience, like optics is usually associated with fiber, but... Optics means literally anything that involves light, <laughs> scientifically. And it could be could involve fibers as well. It could, you know, it could be any context, right? It's um, the, what I'm describing. Uh, but but what's again, what's valuable here is this universality. For a, any given part of substance, we can always find a, a, a laser pulse that will make this substance look like anything you want. But there is a catch. Only for the duration. This is guaranteed to be only for the duration of the laser as long as the laser is on. Once the laser is off, you know, all bets are off and most likely it will just, you know, return to its normal state as it was before. So in this way, right, unlike nuclear physics, right, where you actually literally change substance, right, lead to gold, for example, physically you change it. As a nucleus, you change nucleus, right? You change number of protons and number of electrons. Here, it's only transient behavior, right? It's only transiently while the like a flashlight is on, and this is you know this this discovery sort of there's a number of quite good articles, uh, popular articles that we that we made this quantum magazine, wire magazine, which would describe you know this this is very nice describe the you know with, with some visuals <laughs> quite beautifully done. Mm. So and and if I may go back to your question earlier question, what are the applications of this universality, right? That it's possible to turn one element into look like another element. So it turns out applications are quite, quite broad and quite surprising. When I said, you know, we uncovered this, in reality, what we did is that we, you know, the answer was, this answer, basic, in any text, basically, almost, in any textbooks on quantum 
on any undergraduate textbook in Quantum you can find this answer. But people never thought about that, you know, that formula in this new way. They'd never imagined that that like a boring old like footnote in every which exists in every textbook of quantum mechanics could be turned into this powerful principle of opt, you know new principle of optics. So it, it's actually it's a you know when I'm saying this it's kind of hilarious that it, it was just this result was just waiting to be you know it's just anybody could have picked up and just reinterpreted. I'm, I'm just not clear. So. You- you're saying this makes elements look like other elements when they're not actually transmuted. You know, the nucleuses are unchanged. But what is the use of doing this? Like, what what are some of the commercial applications to driving substances like this? Yeah. So, like, let's go to application. So, applications are uh, there are several of them. Uh, first of all, you can, uh, along as we discussed, as I described before, nonlinear optics, right, as a way to detect more accurately detect and characterize substances. So you can use this fact to actually develop new protocols for doing this, first of all. You can try to improve accuracy of detection and optical discrimination for first application. That's the most like straightforward. Second application, um, more interesting, is, is you can actually ask a question. Okay, so looking like uh, is a property of, of light, right, of how the light interacts. What about other materials? properties of the material? Could this principle be extended to other properties of the material? In particular, for example, one of the questions that we are currently planning to study soon is, uh, could you, for example, induce you know, superconductivity using light from for some like boring materials? Could you take a boring material and sh- shine a laser pulse and actually make this material superconductive? It is known, already known, that in, for some materials, shining light on them actually can induce superconductivity. So this is you know, just, but it's already special materials. You know, it's, it's not boring materials, not everyday material. Uh, it's all specially prepared materials. You shine with them with a simple light, sort of like weak light, and then it becomes like that. So we wanted to extend this uh, perhaps to, you know, more sort of like make, uh, you lose fancy light to make conventional materials exhibit this dynamic. And likewise, we can ask other material properties, whether it's possible to modulate them at what will. Uh, so that's uh, that's one the second area. The third area, and this is we are actively right now studying, uh, is uh, we can actually revive idea, old idea of using uh, building computer based on light only. Surprisingly, this uh, the the principle of being able to make any element look look alike is related to computing as computing as a process. So we know, for example, that uh, com- computations. Current computers are based on semiconductor technology, solid-state semiconductor technology. And we are, you know, current technology is very close to the physical limit of its limit. We cannot make transistors, you know, smaller than, than like, you know, two nanometers, basically. It just, it becomes not a transistor, it becomes something else uh, because new physical phenomena will take place. And so it's time to search for a new physical paradigm for computations. You know, and quantum computing is one of the, sort of attempt to find new physical paradigm of computing. So historically, light has been considered to be also as a medium, physical medium for computation in early days. But of course, you know, we only have computers based on electricity, on electricity right now. So this idea didn't work out. So why didn't work out? It actually, like roughly speaking, why it didn't work out this way is because... You know, electrons and electrons, electron, the current is made of electrons, and electrons between themselves interact very strongly, interact via, you know, electrostatic force. 
and they repulse, and it's a very strong force. So it's very easy to make electrons interact. Uh, it's actually hard to make them not interact. And this is why it's easy to make transistors, such elements as a transistor, because transistor is an actually highly uh, nonlinear element, right? It's a highly nonlinear element in the sense that it has the digital structure. You know, it has this like discrete structure, right? So which means it's nonlinear automatically. With light, situation is very different. Light is made of photons. It's very, very, very hard to make photons interact. And this is why, it, you know, nonlinear optics kicked off only in 60s after discovery of laser, because that's the, for the first time, we could actually make photons interact uh, between themselves, you know? So it's very, very hard to make uh, photons interact. And so people early days, when they try to use light to implement, to build a computer, they actually try to follow the paradigm of electronics computer, meaning you first make a transistor and then you integrate transistor into chips, right? Like an integrated scheme, integrated networks. So while it's possible to make, you know, a transistor, an opt- all optical transistor where the inputs and outputs are all just light, the very fact that transistor, as I just said, is nonlinear element means it will operate only with a laser, very bright laser light. So it's also, which means that its efficiency is not going to be very high. So it's possible to make a single optical transistor. Now, integration of optical transistor into a network is basically, you know, impossible due to the fact that their efficiency is very low. And so very idea of following the paradigm of solid-state computing, right? making, once again, the individual transistors and integrate them into networks, just it's not a natural, it's not physically possible, it's not physically efficient way we're doing with optics. So optics require, if you want to use light for information processing, it requires different way of thinking, very different way. What's the trade-offs? Why use light? To run a computer, is it possible, you know, on on a, on a level of millions or billions of transistors? Like what, what's the reason for all those? Yeah, so there are two kind of two reasons. Uh, first reason is that heat generation, in principle, can much lower would be possible to make it, uh, you know, heat and you know, heat generation is a major issue, very major issue for performance of current computers. So the heat generation can suppress uh, because light does not interact well once again with the with the matter, right? Not like electrons. And the uh, second is a uh, more fundamental issue is that action principle, it's a speed. You know, you would be doing information processing a little the speed of light you know, because light moves with the speed of light. So it's, it's a possibility to, you know, to reach the ultimate speed, physically accessible speed of information processing. Um, and the third interesting thing is that light has a natural parallelization built in, right? Because for example, what is a white light? It's actually collection of all the colors or all the colors of rainbow, right? So they all together move. So in principle, like there is a parallelism in light built in, unlike, like, uh, unlike a wire, right? You cannot move different currents through the same wire. It's going to be just one, one current, right? There's just no way because a uh, current is just motion of electron. But with light, you can put multiple colors into one optical fiber. Of course, it has to be an appropriate optical fiber, but nevertheless, it's possible. So parallelism is built in. Parallelism, bandwidth, speed, and low potential, low heat generation. That's a very, very important attractive feature of would-be optical computer. And so if I may come back, so how, what, how our you know, discovery actually is related to, to this aim of designing optical, all optical compute, computers. The idea is that, as I said, that it's a new, we need to think about computer doing computation in a very different paradigm, uh, just very different paradigm. And not, not just, just following the 
pattern of very successful pattern of solid state of uh, microprocessors. And, and so, so for that, we need to step back and look what is actually computer? What makes a computer computer? So a computer, obviously, it's actually, you know, that Turing, Alan Turing is the one who told us what, what does it take to be a computer? So a computer has a, this universality property. It's called Turing universality. That's a machine that has a Turing, it's a Turing universal machine. And what this universality means, I'm going to paraphrase it, you know, for purpose of our discussion and uh, without going into, you know, computer science, is that it's a machine that can generate any possible output, assuming that you provide appropriate input. Let me just give an example. So when you, when you use a laptop or any cell phone or any d- device, right, what you do is that you provide the input, you click, right? You click, you move type, you, you know, you move the mouse. That's all electronic inputs, in fact, right? Those are electronic inputs. Then this machine takes the electronics and, and can actually produce any possible output. And the output will be like literally screen, right? What you see on the screen. So you can literally make any possible image on the screen, right? But just appropriately clicking, moving, and typing. Or, you know, if you're you no know, computer science, like, you know, if you knew programming, it's probably more efficient just to, to write a program. So program is also an input into the machine, right? It's just different kind of input, but it is an input. So, so once again, so a computer is a machine that can produce any possible output, uh, provided that you supply correct input. Hey, but this is exactly what I just told about nonlinear optics. If you take any substance, you can actually make it make it produce any possible output with the right input. So there's an input that produces desired output is the same property. So nonlinear optics, nonlinear response has actually the same fundamental properties as Turing completeness. So therefore, from this point of view you should be able to build a computer, an optical computer. I mean, the fact that you can build an optical computer is not a new fact. But what's interesting is that what kind of substance is required to build this all optical computer? Or rather, what is the smallest possible computer from this paradigm? It turns out a single atom is enough. Because when I told you a substance, right, I did not specify how big or how small can it be. It's actually can be as small as a single atom. So according to our insights, and recently actually published a preprint, actually literally called single atom computing, it is a possible, we showed how it is possible to build a, a computer on, on a single atom, one single atom, where you know the pro the input, the in, uh, the input would be just a laser light that, that interacts with the atom. And the output would be the light photons emitted by this atom. You collect them and you get the answer. And interestingly enough, to be able to program such a, such a single atom computer, uh, you would use some ideas from neuroscience or like a, a rather computational ideas inspired by neuroscience. It's actually called reservoir computing. It's, it's sort of a, a version of neural networks, not, not a kind of deep neural networks, but you know, a different version of it. And so this is, so, they, so the fact that such a universality in optics exists in, in, when, once you start using a bright light opens a way for rethinking computing, rethinking computing and having it done, you know, on a much more smaller scale. And, and this, is, this is, by the way, it's also called neuromorphic computer for those listeners who actually might, might so have heard of it. But if you have a single, um, is it a single transistor computer, essentially, or, you know, when you say a single atom computer, how many states or how much information can a single atom hold? 
you know, even if it's one bit, you can harness them in mass. Would that be a lot more efficient and scalable and small than current computers? No, I'm actually literally talking about a single atom, which means that um, in this paradigm, in paradigm of neuromorphic computer, uh, you don't actually, you don't, you don't have transistors, right? This is what I was started with. I don't want transistors. Transistors are a problem for life. But how much, how much computing power can you get with one atom? Uh, so, it's in principle, in principle, as the, you know, as much as as, as you as you wish. But trade-off, right? There's a cost to this. Uh, the trade-off is that the complexity in the brightness and bandwidth in the brightness of the incident light. The more you want to squeeze from a single atom, the more bright and the more bandwidth you need to have in the incident light, right? So there's a trade-off. And obviously this thing is, uh, you know, we are investing as activists. We don't have yet full picture, but there is this cost. So, I mean, what is the ideal to have, uh, you know, if you can get things down to the single atom level, to have, let's say, a mole of atoms make a computer or computers be made on the fly? Or like, what are some of the possibilities? Yeah, exactly. It's precisely this uh, idea is to miniaturize, uh, to be able to miniaturize further, to basically break fundamental barrier of current technology, right? To go beyond fundamental barriers of current technology, to enable to more, more slow to, to keep going, right? To keep moving. And that's, you know, this is a very like active research in general, right? New ways of doing computing, new physical platforms of doing computing. And as I just mentioned, quantum computing is is one way, but there are many other computing paradigms, which, you know, we don't hear as much as about quantum computing, but they exist, right? They exist and people work on them very actively. So this is just a contribution to that effort, right? So we, you know, computational power, we need it. Like it needs to grow, right? We need to grow it. Like it's just the way sort of modern society almost runs on it right now, you know, and we need to, this is why it's important, this type of, you know, we already see, I mean, we don't think about it, right, as a users of the internet and information technologies, but there is a cost, right, there's an energy cost to these things, and, you know, thinking about paradigms also, it's about, you know, new energy costs, like reducing So what would this look like if it works in the future? What would a computer look like or a handheld device look like? Or how would it work differently if this is possible? Presently, it's, it's, right, it's hard to imagine. You know, we are talking about, we're only right now, uh, in a way, if you will, writing grants to start doing actual, you know, research, like a lab research on this topic, right? Uh, so what I have been telling you is, is a theory work only. Uh, so it's hard for me, and I'm a theoretician, right? So it's hard for me to imagine the final device, right? <laughs> uh, but for now, it's a lab device, right? It's a it's a it's a huge lab, right? It's a it's a this you know it's a big light with it's a big lab with like big laser, but possibly even vacuum chamber, and you know and then big detector, right? So for now, we're talking about the very very bulky things. It's not at all small, right? It's way bigger than than anything. Uh, but in the, in the future, it's possible to have a computer that what would be the size of a like a whole computer that would be the size of what, a postage stamp or less. Or, uh, like how small could things get? You think? What form factors right. do you envision? Yeah, so very good question. So in principle, um, I can tell you like the ultimate limit, right? Like ultimate physical limit. So it depends on the the light you use, the fr- the frequency of light you use, or rather the wavelength of light, right? So light is a wave a phenomenon, and the distance between nearest crests are the, you know, the most important feature. 
So for example, you know, green light is 600 positive red light, but it's just like 590. And so if you, you know, if, if you say, if you use like very, very blue light close to ultraviolet light on the edge of ultraviolet, but still visible, it's say 400 nanometers. So if you use 400 nanometer light as your, you know, input, right? Input and, um, and you, the computer, you know, cannot be smaller than the 400 nanometer. Right? It has to be several, you know, it's, it has to be like, say, a factor of 10. So it's, it's going to be like four micron large, right? At least minimum than this. So we talk about if ultimate right, limit, we talk about them, you know, micron size computer. That would be the ultimate physical limit. Well, very good. Uh, Dennis, what's the best way to, for people to find out more about your work and about this whole field of nonlinear optics? Where can they look? So, yes, yeah, so on my university's webpage uh, or, or my bonder.tulane.edu. And yeah, there are references to a public, co- like popular coverages on Quantum Magazine, Wire Magazine, and, and other you know, professional writers uh, explain these ideas much more better than I do. And with nice, yeah, no. with nice movies and pictures. Yeah, well, that helps. No problem. Well, very good. Well, Dennis, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And keep up this great work. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.